Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Welcome to a very happy, very relieved, very ecstatic whatever word you want to use, edition of Rico Bronia. The New York Mets sweep the New York Yankees of a very brief two-game series. They blow the game in game two. They come back and win anyway when Starling Marte gets a game-winning walk-off hit. And we as Met fans will not be annoyed or made fun of or bothered by our Yankee fan brethren. We get to avoid that. And I, I think arguably that's one of the biggest parts of the Subway series. I tried to make my point on the air, and I certainly tried to make it on the Rico a couple days ago, which is, yeah, in the midst of these games, they're big, and they feel big, and they feel bigger, and they feel like postseason games. And you don't want to deal with the arrogant, douchey Yankee fan who happens to be a coworker or a brother or a sister or whomever they are. But a few days from now, you will say, oh, yeah, we won two games against the Yankees. It won't be something that stays with you forever the way I think the early days of the Subway Series were. With all of that said, we are recording this a mere hour and a half after the Mets defeated the New York Yankees, so we're still in the freaking moment. And in the freaking moment, it feels good. In the moment, Hoff, I walked out of City Field chanting, let's go Mets, while Yankee fans look sad. They look like, oh, no, what happened? So in the moment, let me and let everyone else have a good freaking time because it was a good time. Right off. Let's freaking go. This house was silent, and that's the way I like it because all the kids <laughs> were crying. Well, cried themselves to bed. So, boom, let's go. By the way, that's how, was the, right. how was the vibe? Like, like, obviously on TV it was electric, but, like, did it feel the same way being there? So the Subway series over the years has gone through a couple of different phases. You know, back in the late 90s when it started, every game felt like a World Series game. Every game had those let's go Mets, let's go Yankees chance. And I think for a while, especially when both teams were either not that good or sucked, more cases the Mets sucked, but certainly a lot of cases where the Yankees just weren't that good. Like in 2013, the Yankees are not that good. In 2014, the Yankees are not that good. The crowd would always be packed. There would always be more energy in the building, but it didn't feel the way it used to feel. This year, it felt like the old days. 
This year, it felt like 1999, and it's not a surprise. The Yankees are very good. The New York Mets are very good. The fans have kind of gone at it a lot this season with, my team's better than your team. So I'm not surprised by it. I also thought last year was really good, too, because if you remember, especially for the July 4th weekend where they played at Yankee, the Mets were good. The Mets were in first place, and the Yankees were scuffling, and then they played the 9-11 weekend. So I thought last year was good, too, but prior to that, if you go back to... 18, 17, 16 was good, happened to be good that year. 14, 13, there were a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of people there, but it doesn't have that same playoff energy. There was great energy the last two days. Uh, There were a lot of Yankee fans there. There were more Met fans there, but I just want to give them the credit or the the fair representation of what was going on. I'd say it was about 60, 40 Mets, something like that. But the crowds were great. Let's go Yankee chance. Let's go Met chance. Uh, It was a real good, healthy back and forth. There was an intensity to every single pitch. And I thought that was awesome. Now, as far as these games are concerned, and I'll just start with the game that we just saw, the finale of this game. We'll touch on game one as well. When Glaber Torres hits a two-run home run off of David Peterson, after David Peterson comes in, and we'll we'll approach this because I think this is going to be a debate on if Buck should have made this move Do we like this move? What do we think of this move? But when David Peterson comes in in a two-run game and he walks Anthony Rizzo on four pitches, I mean, we're all expecting doom. We're all expecting hell. What I didn't exactly expect was that the first effing pitch would be Glaber Torres going oppo, in which off the bat, I didn't think it was out. I really didn't. I thought Starling's going to catch it at the warning track and every smart-ass Met fan's going to say the same thing. It's not Yankee Stadium. (laughs) Well, guess what? This crap got out of City Field, too. And I'm disgusted because, I mean, hey, David, could you give us more than 30 seconds before you blow this lead? But I'm going to blow your mind off. Actually, you're not going to be surprised because you know I've mentioned the idea of David Peterson out of the bullpen and how it could be a weapon. I didn't mind Buck doing this, okay? Now, before I continue and make my case, You don't believe in David Peterson out of the bullpen, so I assume that when you saw David Peterson jog in to face the heart of the Yankee order in the eighth inning, you were less than thrilled. Uh, Listen, not that I say I was less than thrilled, but I saw the experiment the other day. It it didn't work out so well. And after today, after last night's game, after game two against the Yankees, I've officially put an RIP of David Peterson in the bullpen experiment. It's now dead. It's over. All right. Well, okay. July 24th, it started. July 27th, it ended. (laughs) Well, let's go back to July 24th. When Buck used David Peterson, it was very different. It was an 8-1 to game. So he didn't exactly go to him in a high-leverage situation, and he was shaky. I mean, there's just, you know, it is what it was. He gave up a couple of runs. Uh, He walked a bunch of guys. I think he walked one guy, but he gave up a couple. He wasn't good. That's the moral of the story. I'm not ready, and I said this to you the other day, I wasn't ready to abandon it after one try. Now, it is a big jump to go from David Peterson in an 8-1 to game to David Peterson against the heart of the Yankee order. But I want to walk you through my reasoning while, even though it didn't work, I actually liked it. Number one, let's all agree on something. Or at least I'll try to get you to agree on something. Edwin Diaz was not going to pitch today. And it's understandable. Edwin Diaz threw whatever it was the other night, 25 pitches, 22 pitches, whatever it was. It was a four-out save. There's an up-down involved, which I know is a big thing. But more than that, he pitched Saturday and Sunday. 
So Edwin Diaz, if he had pitched today, it would have been four times in five days. That's not going to happen. Even with an off day tomorrow, Buck is looking at the 162. He's got this golden nugget known as Edwin Diaz. He's been utterly brilliant. More on him in a little bit. You're not pitching him four out of five days. So I know there's going to be some Mets fans saying, why the hell not? Well, why the hell not is Buck Showalter cares about the Subway Series, but he's not going to treat it like Game 7 of the World Series. So let's just start there. Do you agree that Edwin Diaz, it made sense for him not to be available in this game? A thousand percent that I uh, actually appreciate the fact that Buck Showalter is so committed to make sure that he uses Edwin Diaz properly throughout the 162 because, like we've said in the past years, the biggest fault is the manager did not know how to use him, which is why it turned so bad for Diaz so quick. Good. So we're, we're all good that as much as we wanted to win this game and Edwin Diaz gives you the best chance to win this game, you got to be smart about this. Four out of five days didn't make sense. All right, so you know Edwin Diaz isn't available. Adam Adovino is also not going to be available. The Mets asked a lot from him in game one of this series. He did a really good job. He's done a really good job for a while. And I think in order to maintain the effectiveness of Adam Adovino, which I'm skeptical is going to last, you can't overuse him. So you knew there is no Diaz, there is no Adovino. So basically, when you look at this bullpen, you've got Joely Rodriguez, who sucks. No one wants to see him. We throw him to the side. You've got Trevor Williams and Yoan Lopez, who are long relievers. If this game goes 13 innings somehow with the Manfred rule, or somehow Max get knocked out early, you'll use Lopez and Williams. Otherwise, they're not options. So now we are down to Seth Lugo. We are down to Tommy Hunter. We are down to Drew Smith. And we're down to David Peterson. All right, we've narrowed it down. Drew Smith has sucked now for a month. If you go back to, I think it's about June 27th in that range, he's given up a run in almost every game he's pitched. All right? So Drew Smith, who got off to a great start, has been rather ineffective over the last month. Doesn't mean I definitely don't want to use him, but if you've noticed, Buck has very rarely used him. He has not pitched a lot, mainly because Buck realizes Drew Smith is not good. Now you got Tommy Hunter. Like, are we really talking about Tommy Hunter? I know Tommy was warming up to pitch the 10th inning, but let's throw that aside. So you've got Seth Lugo and you got David Peterson. That's what you got. And so because there's no Diaz and because there's no Adovino, I think Buck, and I agreed with him, viewed Lugo as the more likely guy to get the final three outs with his save experience and because Rizzo is the lefty and Carpenter is due up third, so you got two lefties. I know Lugo's been effective against lefties. I acknowledge that. But I'm thinking about Peterson here. That Buck probably figures, if I'm going to give him a lane, if I'm committing to Lugo Peterson to get me the last six outs, which maybe you don't agree with, but I think I've made the case why the other guys are not great options, which way are you going to go? And so when he went to Peterson, and Peterson was warming up, believe it or not, in the seventh inning, which means if Scherzer didn't get Judge out, there's a chance he was going to go to Peterson there. Thank God Scherzer got Judge out. I think that A, it makes sense based on who was available, but B, this was an audition. This was Buck saying, okay, two-run lead, New York Yankees, heart of the order, big-time crowd, let's see what you got, because... If the New York Mets are healthy, 
and I don't know if they will be pitching-wise, but if they are healthy, David Peterson's vital role with this team would be either pitching out of the bullpen or being in the minor leagues as an insurance policy in case somebody gets hurt. I thought this was great. I thought this was Buck saying, you know what, kid? Here you go. Here's the problem. It failed. And I admit that. Obviously, it failed. I mean, who's debating that? When he walks Anthony Rizzo on four pitches, and then the first pitch to Glaber Torres is parked over the right field fence, it was a failure. I will give Peterson credit for this. He struck out Matt Carpenter. And you can mock that all you want, but he had to face a third hitter. There's a rule. And David Peterson could have given up a double, or he could have walked him, or he could have done a million different things that would have been bad. He struck him out, I think, on three or four pitches. Small victory. Look, this bullpen has a problem. We all know that. This bullpen needs to add an arm or two or three. And I don't want to hear about Trevor May being healthy. We all know that. Buck Showalter was screaming for David Robertson in this game. He didn't say his name, but by the options he used, it was Buck's way of putting up a, a call to Billy Epler saying, please get me David Robertson. Please get me Andrew Chafin. Please get me Joe Mantiply. Like, we all know that. And much like the Yankees responded by making a trade like minutes after they got swept, the Mets are going to add a reliever. I hope it's David Robertson. I've warmed up to it. I've gone all in on it now. And I want Andrew Chafin. Those are my two guys. You get me those two guys in this bullpen, I feel good. So, I get it. He's a starter. He's not a robot. I was getting texts from a friend of mine who's a Yankee fan saying, Buck's too cute with this move. This was an audition. This was a reminder that while it's the Subway Series and I care and you care and a lot of fans care, this was the perfect moment to say, all right, David, here you go. And it didn't work. We, I get it. Now, Pete, here's where I'm mixed. I'm not ready to bury it. I'm not ready to say, okay, this just doesn't work, period, stop, That's it. it's over. But I understand why we're not using him Friday night against the Marlins or next week against the Braves. Like, I'm not saying I want to just throw him back into it because I think the Mets are going to need him as a starting pitcher. Buck said that to Craig and I the other day when he joined us, and he's right. They have a doubleheader against the Braves. There's a lot of games. See, even if Jake is healthy, which we'll touch on later in this podcast, I think they're going to need David Peterson to start games, so you're going to need to continue to have him stretched out. But I'll say it to you again, man. There's going to be a moment, it's going to be in August, maybe September, where he's going to get another audition because David Peterson could help this team out of the bullpen despite how bad things were on Wednesday night in Game 2 of this series. And I'm going to feel just as bad as when I see him. They need a new theme song for him when he comes out because I need something to like prep myself to like get me up because dude, it just it's one of those things where the writing is on the wall. He's a starter and he can't change that mentality. And he's not going to be able to to be in a, a situational pitcher. He's just not that type of guy. Based on two because, performances. Uh, unfortunately, yes. And I and I think come that on. he's again. It's not a come on cuz you could see It's that two performances. Like, is it, am I wrong? It's two games, Pete. I understand, but we don't need to see it anymore. If I'd prefer, and you may hate this, I'd prefer to see him packaged somewhere else to bring back an asset of a, a Chafin or somebody like that. No, because it's more important. No. It's more important to me to now. He's got no. He's got no role on this pitching staff. Yes, he does. Yeah, first of all. He's going to be incredibly important next year and the year after because he's a controllable 
middle of the rotation, maybe better if he puts it all together. He's had a very good year this year. And also the protection in case DeGrom is hurt, in case Bassett's hurt, in case anybody's hurt. So I think he A, has an important role on this team now. You never have enough starting pitching. And I certainly think in the future he's got a big role. Now look, in a Juan Soto trade, fine, of course. I don't think that's ever happening. But in a trade for Andrew Chafin, I'm not trading David Peterson. Sorry. No, no, not Chafin, but somebody else where you have more control over and stuff like that, too. But listen, David Peterson, I'm sorry. I I don't know the the obsession with the lefties when they're not effective. And he's been better this year. He has been better this year, but he hasn't been lights out. He's now like, what, how can he get past the fourth inning? I mean, he's had, he's had some really rough outings. Ah, come on. Yeah, Overall, he's been fine as a starter. I mean, he's had a, actually a really good year as a starter, and he's going to have to make more starts. But look, I think we could all agree on this. This bullpen needs reinforcements, and they're going to get it. And I think it was exposed in this game based on the choices that Buck Showalter had. Now, with that said, Max Scherzer was... I, I want to use the right word to describe Max tonight because... Max made the big pitch when he had to, and he pitched so effectively, specifically against Aaron Judge, whether it was in the third inning with two men on base, whether it was striking him out to start the sixth, and then obviously the exclamation point when he struck him out in the seventh. I mean, he really, that's the the game for Max, but he was also very lucky, and I think we all can acknowledge that there were a lot of hard hit balls against Max. There were a lot of hard hit balls that found the right guy. You know, whether it's Glaber Torres hitting line drives at Brandon Nimmo or DJ LeMayhew. Excuse me, I burped. DJ LeMayhew showing emotion when he rips that line drive at Francisco Lindor. He was fortunate. And that's okay. Because look, ultimately, despite the fortune that Max had, he still had to make monumental pitches. And he did. Specifically against the guy who may be the MVP of the American League in Aaron Judge. So... I just don't want to say, oh, Max Scherzer was brilliant and move on because I don't think that's necessarily fair or descriptive, but he made the big pitch when he had to, uh, and he showed a lot of balls, which is why Max Scherzer makes as much money as he does. But that's the whole thing. Like, It's amazing that him, DeGrom, these big-time pitchers, they could have off days, but they battle. Like The thing about Max Scherzer that I love is he battles. It may not be looking pretty. It might not be smooth. But it, he's he's battling constantly. He's fighting for that. that. That's what gives him the edge. That's what makes him so great. That's what makes him so amazing to watch. Even on the worst day, he looks amazing. Go seven, oh, shut out baseball. Shut dude, out he, it's, come on. He's got balls. I mean, he's got absolute balls. Yes. I think the only part of this game I was frustrated at was when he gave up the leadoff double to Donaldson, gets the back-to-back strikeouts, and the one thing you can't do when you're facing Kyle Higashioka and DJ LeMahieu is on deck is walk Kyle Higashioka. But, look, he was brilliant because every time he needed to make the big pitch, Josh Donaldson, first and third, two outs, sixth inning, first pitch gets him to tap it back to the mound. Like, an example right there. Uh, he, and obviously the judge stuff, which I already pointed out, whether it was the second inning or the seventh inning, he made the big pitch when he had to. And look, I thought Buck was, Buck was right for when he took him out. I know the pitch count wasn't even at a hundred at that point, but he was done. I think at that point with the heart of the order coming up, uh, he's done. I, I think he got the best out of him. So that was another one of those. I used this example a couple of weeks ago when they faced the Braves. This is why I'm here kind of moment. It was a this is why I'm here kind of moment. A reminder of, look what I can do. I am a true ace, even on my birthday at 38 years old. I can make the big pitch when I have to. He wasn't overwhelming. He wasn't dominant, but he did the freaking job.
I have a question for you because this is something that always bothers me. It may be just because you're so hyper-focused on your aces when they're on the mound. But explain to me why the Mets offense becomes anemic when Scherzer's on the mound, when Jacob DeGrom's <laughs> on the mound. I, I swear to God, zero runs scored for him. I mean, that. Well, sorry, two. But it, it feels like it's zero every freaking time. Yeah, it's... Look, I think we have to remind ourselves that despite breaking out Sunday night against the Padres and a little bit of what they did in the opener of this series against the Yankees, there's also an offense that just doesn't hit. Like, they haven't... They have not been a juggernaut offense. You pointed out the last time we pod on the Rico about their struggles over the last month and a half, whatever that sample size is since June. Sometimes it's just they're not a great offense right now. And they had opportunities against Domingo Herman. They really did. I mean, the one that jumped out at me was the fourth inning when they got the first two guys on base, and you have McNeil, and you have Escobar, and you have Nitto. And also, Lindor, to his credit, remember, Nitto got the leadoff double in the third inning. You got a runner on second, nobody out with the top of the order coming up, and Nimmo pops up, came and advance him. Marte strikes out, who had a devilish time against Hermann. It's like he couldn't see him until he capped it off with the game winner. And then Lindor came through. I mean, that was a huge hit by Francisco Lindor, which is a part of why he has as many RBIs as he has. Like, you could look at his OPS and look at any number you want. He's had a lot of big two-out hits, and that was a two-out bail-you-out kind of hit because the Mets were about to leave a runner on second with nobody out and not score. Passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride-or-die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance from superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Old man winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. (laughs) Heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, old man winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. So, look, I think the answer is this is still an offense that isn't fully clicking, but they also had opportunities in this game. Two on nobody out in the fifth, they don't score. Two on two out in the fifth after they get Herman out of the game and they're facing the immortal Lucas Litke, they don't score. Um, the eighth inning, which I thought was really fascinating. So Boone goes to Holmes. I'm taking off the Met fan hat for a second. I'll give you the analyst hat. I loved Boone doing that. I love it. 
He used his best reliever against the middle of the med order in the eighth inning because managers sometimes make the mistake of, oh, I'm saving him. Saving him? You may never get to use him. Ask Buck Showalter about saving a reliever for when you never get to use him. Zach Britton says hi. Like, I thought it was, again, speaking as a baseball fan, it was an awesome move. And as a Met fan, I'm saying, all right, Clay Holmes throws 100-mile-an-hour sinkers. This guy's impossible to hit, but draw a walk because Clay's, you know, had some control issues. And Vogelbach draws the walk. No brainer pinch running for him. I know you lose the bat, but no brainer. You got to get Jankowski on the bases. And then Marcana hits that ground ball on a 3-2 pitch in which they're sending the runner, thank God. And Janikowski makes this incredible juke to miss out on Glaber and respect to Glaber Torres. Because Glaber Torres... After letting it sink in, quickly... I don't know if they showed this on TV. I apologize if they did. I'm at the game. Glaber's Torres starts putting his hands out saying no to Aaron Boone. Do not challenge it. I thought that was great. It was Glaber's way of saying, no! I did not tag him. Don't do it. We will lose. So, I respect that. I respect the player basically saying, don't do it. So, runner on second, two outs. And as a Met fan, I'm saying... Don't walk McNeil. Because I don't trust Eduardo Escobar. Who would? He was 0 for 3 with three strikeouts at that point. Will Boone learn from the mistake of the night before when he didn't walk McNeil with a base open? And it appeared they were pitching around him. I love it because as a Met fan, I want McNeil to hit. I want him to hit. But if I'm a Yankee fan, I'd, I'd walk him. There's no way I'm letting Jeff McNeil beat me. And Glaber Torres bailed everybody out with that great play. But look, Clay Holmes extends the game, but I also knew, we also knew, as Seth Lugo pitched maybe one of his better games, the back-to-back strikeouts in the eighth, he gets through the ninth inning. The Mets better win the game in the ninth inning because if they go to the 10th with the Manfred rule and a runner on second, Tommy Hunter's coming in. And even though the Yankees have their own issues with their bullpen, this is not a situation you want to be in. So I, I don't know if you felt this way, Bottom of the ninth, I'm thinking they got to beat Wandy Peralta, the birthday boy, because if this thing goes extra innings, this, is gonna, this ain't working for us. No, and, and as soon as Escobar doubled off the, to lead the inning, I'm like, okay, this is it. We wrapped it up. It was perfect. Oh, really? You were confident? We wanted Look at you. Oh, 100%. Uh, I've always been confident with this team. <laughs> I confidently give me a headache, but I, I'm, I'm always confident with that. But, yes, listen, Escobar from the right side, he's beautiful. He is. He's a different hitter. I mean, he really has. I mean, especially when you look at, I think he faced Litke from the right side in one of the strikeouts. But remember, he was 0 for 3 with three strikeouts coming into that at-bat. But yeah, jumps on a first pitch, rips a double. And what's great is it's, it allows you to take the bat out of Nitto's hand. Because you know Nitto is going to lay down a bunt. And I apologize because I've had a few people criticize me for this. Nitto. I call him Nitto for some reason. Nitto. So I'm going to fix it. I'm going to learn. Okay. It only takes me seven years sometimes with players, you know, where I'm like, oh, that's how you're pronouncing. It's I used Mark- to call J. Roos familiar J. J. Roos or something like that. I forget what I used J. to call Roos? Something like that. It's, it's yeah, Mark- they used to call him J. Roos. It's Mark Kanya, by the way, right? No, I don't Kanya. start with me with uh, that. Son of a bitch. <laughs> by the way, Tom- Tomas love- Tomas Nitto. Is it Nito Nito. No, it's Nito. Yeah, well, it wasn't a Nito bunt the first attempt. It was terrible, actually. Did you no, that, that was bad. But you know what? I oddly had confidence because Tomas Nito, what I like about Tomas Nito is he knows he sucks as a hitter. 
He does. Like He accepts that. We've seen him lay down sacrifices before. Tomas Nito brings back the aspect of the pitcher hitting because he knows he's you know sort of a pitcher, <laughs> even though he did have a double in the third inning, which started that whole rally where Lindor got the big hit. So Nito loves to bunt. I get that impression. Like, yeah, oh, perfect spot to bunt. This is a no-brainer. Because your move, obviously, Escobar to 30 finally gets it down. And now you got Nimmo, Marte, Lindor, runner on third, less than two outs. When Nimmo hit the comeback, or I'm actually screaming, Escobar's got to run on contact. Because that ball was hit off of the mound. It was going to be a tough play for Wandy Peralta. Obviously, he's not running on contact infield hit. And then, once they brought the infield in, and they had to. Because it's very difficult to turn two on Starling Marte. I felt good. You had more wiggle room. And that line drive is probably caught if the infield's back. Because I think it gives IKF more room to make that play. But then obviously Marte gets the hit and we all celebrate. And it was a really, really good win. Because this was the game they had to win. You know, I know by the time it's 2-2 in the eighth inning, it doesn't matter that it was Scherzer Herman. I totally understand that. But I think as a Met fan, going into that game, that was the game we needed to win. And it would have been a major buzzkill to split and to blow a lead, especially with the fact that the Atlanta Braves have started to lose, which is great to see. They lose two out of three to the Philadelphia Phillies, and all of a sudden we're three games up, four in the loss column. Like, it's not a huge lead, but it's wiggle room. We were sitting here Sunday night or before the Sunday night game thinking, oh my God, we're going to lose first place. And look, we still may. There's a ton of games coming up with Atlanta, but it does feel good now going into the off day, going into the series against the Marlins, knowing, okay, back to 3-4 in the loss column. That is a very good feeling as a Met fan. A very good feeling. Um, As far as the first game is concerned, look, Taiwan Walker, in a lot of ways, was his most impressive. Because, and we've touched on this, Taiwan Walker had a terrible second half last year. He was 0-8 with like a 7 ERA. He was that bad. And when he gives up back-to-back home runs in the first, there is a feeling of, here we go again. I was I don't know if you saw this, Hoff. I was actually caught on TV after the judge home run. Did you see this? Uh, I saw the judge home run. Which which broadcast? The SNY one? No, TBS. That's why I'm that's sure most people didn't see it. No, I was, I was watching the TBS one. No, I missed that. Really? I have to go back. Yeah, I... I had this sent to me by my brother-in-law and then obviously a lot of trolls on Twitter. Um, So Judge hits the home run and there's a a view of me just disgusted. Like my face is just... (laughs) And the best part is my son who went to the game, Jet, my oldest, has his head down scoring the game, like writing down the home run, which is fantastic. But we were all disgusted. I mean, listen, we were all disgusted by giving up back-to-back home runs and I don't know if this popped in your mind, bro, here we go. Second half, Taiwan Walker. Like, it's got it. Did that not approach your brain at all in the first inning? Uh, it, it was more like, uh, I'm well, we're going to get screwed versus the Yankees. And it's, it's the first inning. This is not how I want this series to go. It wasn't thinking more about Walker, more about myself. No, I, I listen, I get it. Especially when you've got Yankee fans in your household. In my case, I'm at City Field, so I got Yankee fans all around me. Um, Bucks made this comment before, and I want to give him some credit for it because... I think it really was the case in game one. He says, sometimes Brandon Nimmo has an at-bat that wins us the game or helps us win the game, even if he doesn't come through. That at-bat in the first thing against Jordan Montgomery was an example of that. I think he was behind in the count 0-2, fouled a bunch of pitches off, battled, eventually lines out the center field. But right after that, Marte hits a home run, Lindor doubles, Alonzo doubles, Escobar hits the home run. There's no way to prove that the Nimmo at-bat led to that. But we've seen this before. 
And what was encouraging about that is Nimmo has not been hitting. He really he didn't hit in this series. He had the infield hit in the ninth inning against Peralta. But outside of that, I think he was one for nine. He has not hit, but he can still contribute with an at-bat like that. And obviously, the Met offense responding after Taiwan Walker ran into his trouble was huge. Taiwan Walker with that huge pickoff. He's perfected the whole, I'm going to lull you to sleep with the slow lob the first, and then boom, I'm going to pick your ass off. But the fact that, and look, he was very lucky to get to the fourth inning. I thought Rizzo was right for swinging 3-0. Taiwan Walker essentially admitted he lobbed it in, hits the ball almost out of the ballpark. Buck showed confidence to even let him start the fifth. And by the way, I think a part of that is the bullpen sucks. I really do. I think a lot of Buck pushing starters has been, I have more faith in them than I do those guys. Because if the Mets had a deep bullpen, no joke. I think Taiwan Walker's out of the game after the fourth inning. I really do. Now, sometimes it works, right, Pete? Because Buck says, hey, my bullpen sucks. I'm going to let Ty start the fifth inning. He retires the next six guys. It's great. He pitches six innings. Everybody's happy. But if you've got a deep bullpen, I don't know if he starts the fifth inning. Dude, I don't know if you I don't know if he saw because I saw, but he had Tommy Hunter warming up in like the fourth inning or whatever it was. Yeah. And I'm sure that lit a fire under his ass. Like, dude, I can't let this guy blow this game. Because that's what that, we're talking about Tommy Hunter in the eighth, ninth, tenth inning. Oh, this game's basically over. In the, in the fourth inning, Tommy Hunter coming in, I mean, who knows where that game could have gone. It, so, uh, you know, I, I thank God he buckled down. It, it's weird. And I, and I hope the Mets have this incredibly deep bullpen in a couple of days before the trade deadline. I mentioned the guys I want already, Robertson, Chafin, guys like that. But one of the weird things about having a crappy bullpen, and I, I can't prove this unless Buck admits it, is that it forces you to push starting pitchers more. And sometimes, not always, because I remember earlier this year with Chris Bassett, I thought he left him in way too long and pushed him. But in a night like Monday, or Tuesday, I should say, whenever the freaking first Subway Series game was, I forgot the days, it benefits you. Because he got six outs from Taiwan Walker in the fifth and sixth that I'm not sure he asks to get if he's got a deeper bullpen. Because right now, his circle of trust, and maybe Lugo changes that with the way he pitched in the finale of the Subway Series, but the circle of trust in the Met bullpen is Edwin Diaz and Adam Adovino. That's it. Like, there's no one else you can trust in this bullpen. And I know most of us kind of look at Adam Adovino and say, ah, eventually he'll blow up. And I, and I still feel that way. But I got to give the man credit. I mean, Adam Adovino has been utterly brilliant since Memorial Day. If you look at his numbers since the Philly series, remember when he gave up the game-tying home run on that, I think a Sunday night, the Mets won it anyway? He's been amazing. I mean, just righties, lefties. He has been unbelievable. And look, to his credit, I think, or, or to Buck's credit, I thought Buck handled it perfectly where he pitches the seventh. Wasn't the cleanest inning, but he was able to get through it and get the big out, especially the caught stealing, which was monstrous. He lets him start the eighth. As soon as he walks Aaron Hicks, he goes to Edwin Diaz. And I know Boone kind of played it off like, I was trying to get Edwin Diaz in the game so that he wouldn't be available the next day, which technically worked. Edwin Diaz wasn't available. But in the moment, we all want Edwin Diaz on the mound. And it's crazy that we've gotten to that point, but we're here. I mean, the guy's been amazing. The guy's been unbelievable. Uh, do we ultimately believe he's going to be the guy that 
dominates a postseason run and helps us win a championship? I don't know. We've seen so many postseason failures from closers. It's tough because Craig asked me that. Like, hey, are you confident Edwin Diaz in the playoffs? Look, Edwin's had an amazing year. I don't want to take anything away from him. He has shown me no signs that he's going to struggle in a big spot, which is another compliment to Edwin. But I think the scar tissue of being a Met fan is that Armando Benitez exists. Billy Wagner exists. Jairus Familia exists. Armando Benitez exists. Armando Benitez exists. John Franco exists. And Armando Benitez exists. And so it's tough to ever believe, oh, yeah, he's going to be, you know, dominant in the postseason. That's why, and I don't know if Boomer was just busting people's balls the other day, but when Boomer compared Edwin Diaz to Mariano Rivera, it's either the dumbest thing I've ever heard or it's just Boomer being a good, you know, shock jock radio host. The reason Mariano Rivera can never be compared to anybody is is the postseason dominance. And I know he's had his moments in the postseason, but he has a 0.90 ERA in the playoffs. Like, literally let that sink in. A 0.90 ERA in the postseason. I'm going to say it one more time because it's ridiculous. He has a 0.90 ERA in the postseason, and he appeared in like 95 games. So it's more than a sample size of a full season. Uh, look, I don't know what the hell is going to happen in the playoffs. What I do feel good about is that in these big regular season moments that you can compare to the playoffs, Edwin Diaz has come up huge, and he looks unhittable right now. There's no doubt about that. I mean, he looks absolutely unhittable, and Hoff, to your point, Bucks used him correctly I guess I don't know what incorrectly truly is but what he's done with him has worked because he's been amazing if you want to know what incorrectly is look at last year look at Mickey Calloway years and then you'll be like oh okay that makes sense I understand it when you use him like three or four days in a row non-save situations you don't really understand like it the 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 situational hitting pitchers too the situational batters like I think Buck understands what part of the lineup is important. And, like, he's done. Yeah. Brings him in the eighth inning. If you think that's the biggest situation, it's beautiful. I, I love it. And, look, Boone, Boone did that in game two of this series, too, with his best reliever, which I think all managers should do. Um, I never thought this at the time, but in that wild card game where Zach Britton wasn't used by Buck Showalter, it's probably one of the most defining managerial moments of Buck's career. I know Yankee fans could bring up stuff from 95, and I respect that. But the Britain thing is like a defining moment. I think it's the greatest thing that ever happened to us as Met fans because he will not, he will not leave Edwin Diaz in that bullpen in a must-win game. He won't. I really do. I think you learn lessons in life as managers, as whatever you do. Edwin Diaz will be deployed in a major spot there will never be a bullet left in the chamber because Buck learned his freaking lesson from Zach Britton. Listen, let me tell you something. Okay? It has hit the little league level even where coaches are like, I cannot have my best pitcher not get in this game in an important game. If it's a tournament game or whatever, if we lose or we're out, I need my best pitcher in here just to shut everything yeah. down. Like, it, it has to happen. And, That's your go-to every, every and, time. And there's so many moments in baseball history where that philosophy, which I think is just wrong of, no, I got to save him, uh, came back and bit you. Yankee fans. I, I don't know if any Yankee fan is listening to, especially this edition of the Rico, but Joe Torre and Mariano Rivera in the 03 World Series. Like, he didn't use Mariano Rivera. He went to Jeff freaking Weaver, who gave up the home run to Alex Gonzalez. Like, you have to use your best reliever. You just have to. All right, a couple of things I want to get to. Number one, Jacob. Jacob DeGrom. I did watch his performance because I bought the minor league baseball ticket package, whatever it is. Uh, it was an early start. So his velocity was down. And 
I can't be a hypocrite about it. I, I have always raised red flags for years. This isn't new that, wow, it's abnormal. Jake throws as hard as he does as often as he does. So I've said that before. It's nothing new. I can't sit here and say, oh, my God, he's only throwing 95. Like, that's what I want. You know, I, I want Jacob to Grom to be more like a Verlander or Scherzer who pick their moments to deploy that top velocity. Now, I have a buddy of mine who played college baseball, and he says, Evan, this proves you're a NARP, like Boomer says. It's not that easy. You can't. It's not a button you can press to change the velocity of your pitches. And look, I'm not going to argue that because what the hell do I know? All I'm stating is I've always been concerned about how fast he throws as often as he does. That's all. I'm not telling you that I know for sure that's caused injuries or that there is a button you could press to not throw as hard. Like, I'm not arguing that because obviously I don't know how to throw 98. <laughs> I really don't. But when I did see his velocity down, my only worry is, is he feeling okay? Not, why is his velocity down? His velocity being down was 95, 96. It wasn't 89, 90. Uh, He had a rocky second inning. I don't care about that. What I cared about was he got a lot of swing and misses. He pitched better in the third and fourth inning. And as of now, he feels good. And that's all that matters. Jacob DeGrom has set a bar for us in terms of how well he's pitched, when he's pitched. That's ridiculous. It doesn't exist. He had a 108 ERA or whatever it was. Jacob DeGrom's going to give up runs the way Max Scherzer gives up runs, the way Garrett Cole gives up runs. If Jacob DeGrom comes back and has a 2-6 ERA, we'd probably be pretty good with that, right? That's a run and a half higher than what he pitched to last year. But we can't have that standard. I just want him to be an ace. doesn't have to be historic. Doesn't have to be Bob Gibson, but more than anything, I want him to pitch. Because when Jacob DeGrom pitches, he's really good. It's pretty simple. He's really good. Again, not 2021 historical good. He doesn't have to be, but I just want to see him pitch. That's all I'm at right now. So I think what's going to be big over the next few days is what do we hear about Jake? Do we hear that he had soreness? Do we hear that he's being shut down? Or do we hear, hey, all good. Let him make his first start in Washington against the Nationals, which is when it would be either Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Keep this in mind. There's a 30-day clock. We've talked about this. The 30-day clock's going to run out on August 3rd. So he's got to make a major league start. I mean, he has to be added to the roster. Or he goes, you know, I think they restart the whole freaking thing. Uh, He can't do rehab. I think that's how it works. If he starts Monday or Tuesday in Washington, he's in line to face the Braves. Is that a big deal, you ask? I'm mixed about that. Normally, I'd say, of course it's a big deal. Of course Jake has to face the Braves. They have a five-game series against the Braves. I am at such a beginning stage with Jake because he's only made a handful of starts over the last year and a half where give him extra time if he needs it, just get him back. I can't look at a series in August at home when there's another series against the Braves a week later in Atlanta and say, but I have to have him face the Braves at Citi Field. I don't. I don't. If this was a healthy Jacob DeGrom, I'd say, of course, he has to face the Braves at Citi Field. But we're working our way back with him. So if he makes his return, let's say, Wednesday against the Nationals, which is an afternoon game, and he misses the Atlanta series, It's not the end of the world. He gets lined up against Cincinnati. Maybe it's easier to start off that way. Maybe it's better for Jake to have, as great as he is, a nice soft landing spot as he arrives back onto the scene. 
Because ultimately, as much as I want to beat the Braves in August, this is about Jacob DeGrom being healthy, making starts every five or six days, and starting in October. That's what it's about. With that said, I think he's going to start against the Braves. I think he's going to start, assuming he's healthy, either the Monday or Tuesday game against Washington. They have a doubleheader against the Braves next Saturday. It could line up where Scherzer and DeGrom pitch in that doubleheader. It could happen. Or DeGrom pitches on Sunday against the Braves. They're going to need an extra starter. So it does make sense to have Jake pitch in that series because they're going to need six starters because they're playing five games in four days. And there aren't any off days mixed in. So... That's why, to your point, we were talking earlier, Pete, about David Peterson. He's going to make more starts. They're going to need him to make more starts. And I don't right. think the Mets are adding a starter before the deadline. No. Would you say, bro? I said great about uh, David Peterson. I can't <laughs> wait. And no, I don't. I, I, the only person, and I don't know if they won today. I know he had a, no, he had a rough outing yesterday, Carlos Rodon. It's the one guy I keep an eye on because, again, he does have uh, an opt-out next year. So if the Giants turn into some sort of some sort of sell mode. They may. Maybe. He's had a great season this season. That's what I'm talking well, about. Did you see what Carlos Rodon did in that game? I did. Okay. <laughs> Do you want to say it or should I? Because he kicked a bat and he happened to hit somebody. A Tyro, yes. Tyro Estrada. Tyro Estrada. The best part of that, and I tweeted this out, was in the clip, Wilmer Flores is so pissed off at Carlos Rodon. Wilmer Flores walks over with his arms out like, what are you doing? And he says something to him, and he don't look happy, which is great. Wilmer's a veteran leader. I think the Giants and the Red Sox are the two teams specifically that maybe we didn't envision as a seller that I think based on what's happened over the last few weeks, you can certainly make the case are sellers. And in the Red Sox case, you're obsessed with Carlos Rodon, which is fine. Like, I totally get it. The Mets were interested in him during the offseason. Uh, I'm obsessed with J.D. Martinez, yeah. assuming he's healthy. That would be the ultimate DH ad because he changes the lineup. Like he, there are very few guys that just change the lineup. JD Martinez would be one of those guys. But with with all of that said, I think these few days against the Yankees are a reminder. They need bullpen help more than anything. Like I go back and forth sometimes. They need a bat. Need a reliever. Obviously, the answer is both. I mean, clear. Like I, I want to make that clear. Both, but they need bullpen help. No, and that, that's the thing. Is like so. BT, if you ever listen to T, uh, anybody that listens to the T Continue Show, BT from the opening of the season said the Mets need a bat. The Mets need a bat. I go, that's good. They do, but the first they do, thing yeah. they have to, have to address from day one, the beginning of the season, it's been the bullpen. That's been the biggest issue all season long. Oh no doubt. No one's gonna deny. But in order, bullpen has always been number one. Has yeah. never not been number one, and it's not gonna change yeah, look, until it happens. So. As far as the order of this season and how it's gone, I think we all knew the DH spot was a question. It didn't mean it was going to be a failure, but we looked at Dom, we looked at JD, and we looked at Robbie Cano. Let's not forget he was here. By the way, he has been terrible with the Braves, so let's just acknowledge that. But we looked at those three guys and said, is the answer coming internally? And it was certainly fair to say, probably not, but let's give it a few months. Let's see if J.D. Davis is the answer. Let's see if Dom is the answer. And hell, let's see if Robbie Cano is the answer. They have not been. And that, that answer has been it's, been, it's clear. They're not the answer. But we needed to give them that shot. Obviously, we both have expressed frustration that Vientos hasn't gotten that shot, that Alvarez hasn't gotten that shot. Though Alvarez has struggled at AAA, so whatever. We'll put that in the corner. But clearly, based on the performances of those guys, J.D. Davis, Dom Smith, 
and Robbie Cano, yeah, they need to add a bat. No doubt about it. I think with the bullpen, Lugo's been disappointing. Smith, I think overall's been disappointing, even though he got off to a great start. May, obviously, major disappointment because he's been hurt. And Adovino's been the greatest. Adovino's been the gold standard besides Diaz in terms of you're getting more, we're getting more from him than any of us could have expected. So, yeah, they clearly need bullpen out. They need two relievers. I think it's two. I think they need a righty. They need a lefty, even oh, though Robertson yeah. can get lefties out too. No, no, lefty. Like, you it's better you, against lefty. You you need because you can't go anymore with the with, uh, uh, Jolie Rodriguez. He's got to go. He I can't see him in another game. You can't have David Peterson. And I know that you said you know he's going to get opportunities, but realistically in the playoffs, a big time lefty situation comes up. David Peterson on the mound in the eighth. Seventh, eighth inning? No, I'm, <laughs> wow. I, I need somebody else. You just need somebody else. So that 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 can't be. So you need two two bullpen, if not three. Yeah, yeah, and we'll see. Look, the Yankees have responded. It was very George-like that the Yankees got swept by the Mets and within minutes made a trade for Andrew Benintendi, who's a the perfect target. I think that's something we could all agree on. He was the absolute perfect target for the Yankees. Left-handed bat. They should DFA Joey Gallo. He's... Mu- I don't want to call Benintendi a contact hitter because I have a tough time calling a lot of people contact hitters, but he doesn't strike out a ton. That's how I would phrase it sometimes <laughs> with guys. There aren't many contact hitters in Major League Baseball, but he's a good bat-on-ball guy, and he's he's just perfect for them. The Mets' perfection is David Robertson. I think he's become that. I think I think Robertson's become that guy not only because of how well he's pitched and the splits, but I think one thing that's very valuable that sometimes we forget is he doesn't come here with the questions of Kenny Pitch in New York. And a lot of guys do. A lot of guys will come here and you're like, well, let's see if they can handle New York. Let's see if they can handle being booed for the first time. I love the fact that David Robertson's done it before. One quick thing I want to address, because I thought this was fascinating. Fascinating. Max Scherzer used PitchCom today. And I noticed it early on, and I remember Scherzer, I forget specifically what he had said in the past, but was never a fan of PitchCom. But he was using PitchCom. And it worked. I mean, Scherzer was pretty good. He didn't allow a run in seven innings. And so I saw his post-game comments. And I do want to read them because I think this is an amazing debate. What went into the decision to use PitchCom? Tim Healy tweeted this out. So thank you, Tim. Nitto really wanted me to try it. I would start with that. Great. Nitto basically said, come on, Max. Let's do PitchCom. Here's what I'll say about PitchCom. It works. Does it help? Yes. Here's the caveat. But I think it should be illegal. (laughs) (laughs) What? I, I don't think it should be in the game. Stealing signs is a part of the game. For me, I've always taken pride in having a complex system of signs and having that advantage over other pitchers. So the fact that we're taking this out of the game and we're putting in technology, now you can't steal signs on second... The pitcher can't have an advantage of having a complex system. It's a part of baseball trying to crack somebody's signs. So, does it have its desired intent that cleans up the game a little bit? Yes. But I also feel it takes away a part of the game. He's he's right on a lot of levels. He's admitting, yes, it works. I don't like it. 
because stealing signs is a part of baseball. And he is right. Stealing signs, and we're not talking about the Astros. All right, let's just please leave that out. We're not talking about using electronic devices. We're talking about what's been going on since the beginning of time. A guy on second figures out your signs. And you know what? It's stealing, but it's not stealing. It's your team not being smart enough or being complex enough. And Max Scherzer's telling you, I'm smart. I have an advantage that me and my catcher will have signs that you can't break. So because these other schmucks can't come up with cool signs, we got to go to technology to protect those imbeciles. Scherzer's like, I don't need protection. He's a badass and he's right. I completely agree with what he's saying, but, but, I don't necessarily agree that would make it illegal because one of the desired effects of Pitchcom, I don't know if this has been proven yet because I know there are some times where, oh, they're having a problem with Pitchcom, but as they perfect it, I think it speeds up the game. And speeding up the game is important. And that's where me and Max are going to fundamentally disagree because I know he doesn't like the pitch clock either. I love the pitch clock. So, while I think his points about stealing signs is completely fair, and I totally agree with him, there's another desired effect that you're trying to get out of this, and that's, hey, can we move the game along? You know what he sounds like? He sounds like a miserable fantasy baseball owner. <laughs> I would not want to deal with him in my league. He'd be that guy that I'd be on like, dude, you can't do that. Well, it doesn't say it in the rule book that way, so I was able to interpret it this way. He's that type of guy. He's tricky. Dude, I, lo- I love the chess match. Like that's, that's something that I love about Max Scherzer, and I love that about baseball. You've had these internal chess matches all over the place, but he's and, like that intense, dude. And he's asked by, I think it was Tim Healy. Tim Healy tweeted it, so I assume he asked the question, will you continue using it since it exists? I don't know. I'll continue to think about it. I might. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, there's nothing wrong with him using it. Like, his answer could be, I don't think it should exist. I don't like it. Here are my reasons. But hey, since it does exist and since everyone else is using it, of course I'll use it. It makes it easier. So I don't think that's hypocritical at all. I just think that stealing signs is a part of the game. He's I totally agree with what he's saying. I really do. But I think if the desired result, and I'd love to see the facts on this because I want to know, is Pitchcom speeding up the game? I'm saying that it is. I don't actually know if it is. If it is speeding up the game, because I want to be fair about that. I don't have the the facts to back me up on that. I really don't. Because I know there are times, Pete, where, like, Wandy Peralta uh, in game two was holding his hand to his ear. There are delays with Pitchcom. But when it works, does it speed up the game? If the answer is yes, I'm a big proponent of that. So I'd be willing to trade off losing the stealing of signs in turn of, hey, the game's moving along. I know Max hates the pitch clock, too. I I disagree with him about that. I have not seen a negative thing about the pitch clock. But look, Max is intense. Like, his intensity in the negotiation room is what we're seeing on the mound. I mean, you saw the emotion when he was striking out Aaron Judge and he was walking off the mound. He's He's a crazy man, and I'm so glad he's on our baseball team. Oh, God bless. By the way, before we finish up, I do have to give a shout-out to my boy, uh, Chris Wade, who was at the ball game on Tuesday. He, Chris Wade, former UFC fighter, P, going for PFL championship uh, he worked in the PFL, MMA fighter. If He's up for the $1 million prize in the PFL. But he was at the game with his uh, girlfriend or wife and his child, and um, they saw a kid scoring a, a 
card, a book. And they're like, oh my God, can you believe this? And he looks up and boom, you're right there too. So it's like, he, <laughs> I was like, you have, you should, I don't know if he ever talked to you at all, but big, big fan listens to WFN all the time, Long Island native. So we should give him some props and love anyway. But did you guys end up talking? Because he was texting me. I'm like, did you, I- you gotta t- take a picture. I talked to a lot of people, uh, especially the first game of the series. I was sitting in different seats, field level seats. So I spoke to a lot of people that night. So I can't say yes or no. I, I, I can't. And I sent you, a, I sent you a picture of him, but unfortunately he had his no, he had no shirt on in that moment. So I'm not sure. Yeah, if you, got this. <laughs> you sent me a shirtless picture of a dude. I'm like, what? What am I looking well, at? He's right in now? the cage. He's in the cage. Just beat somebody up. So that's why I sent you. Yes. But. Well, I'm glad. I mean, I'm glad he he noticed the one five year old is scoring a Met game. <laughs> well, the kid the kid did like. Can you believe that's incredible? And then it's like he looks up and goes, "Oh, it's Evan, of course." And I'm like, "Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, that's Evan. That's Evan." I, I'll say this again because people don't believe me. He wants to score the games. I have never once said Jets score the game. He wants to do it, and he got to experience a Subway Series game. I will say these weeknight games, uh, Subway Series games, are rough because there's a lot of drunkenness. There's a lot of cursing, which obviously I don't care about. I'm not a prude. But when I am with my five-year-old, I have to make adjustments. I have to explain to him, yeah, we're not going to repeat that, Chet. Yeah, we're not going to say that out loud, Chet. Well, I, we went to opening day because I went to uh, opening day with BT uh, for the Yankee series. Right. And there was a guy behind us again, JD. He's 12 years old. And, and BT took a son, Colt, who's seven years old. And the vulgarity was extensive. It wasn't like F this, F that. It was like, yo, you suck a big D. And I'm not just talking about like a tiny D. Like it's a huge D, the whole Ugh. thing. And it's like again, descriptive. And the JD's sitting there laughing. I'm like, I got nothing. I got, I got, I got nothing. That's a this tough what, spot. Yeah. That's a, what are you supposed to do about it? Because Yeah, because I'm not the kind of guy that's ever going to tell anybody not to say that. It's more... I've got to deal with my son and decide how we're going to talk about this. Like, and why would you suck at the big D, right? Like, <laughs> what are you supposed, you're not supposed, why are we sucking a big D? I, I don't know, Jay. Like, yeah, it <laughs> definitely complicates things. It definitely did. But hey, hell of a series, Met fans. Rub it into your Yankee fan friends. But I remind you, after you rub it in, when we get to Friday night and it's the Mets against the Marlins, the series doesn't matter. I stand by that. I was into it. I was pumped up. I'm always into these games when they're happening. Uh, I think Thursday at work, everybody has a good time. I'm telling you right now, Friday night, it doesn't matter. We move on. Uh, And you beat the Marlins, and that's it. And then you worry about the Nationals after that. This is a period of time where the Mets could really take advantage of things. The Marlins look like they're going to sell. They're struggling. Garrett Cooper's on the I.L., I have not checked the rotation to see if they're going to miss Alcantara or not. You would know, Hoff, since he's on your freaking fantasy team. I think he's pitching Sunday. God. Saturday or Sunday. Yeah. Damn it! <laughs> How many you times we got to see this guy? Every freaking time. I know. And then a Do series you- against the Nationals in which it goes into the trade deadline. So Juan Soto may or may not be there. And then obviously after that, the big series against Atlanta. So the hope is, the way I would view it, is can they right now, four games up in the loss column, add to this lead going into the series against the Atlanta Braves? Now, the Braves also have a very soft schedule. They are playing three with the Diamondbacks, and they're playing two with the Phillies. So they only play five times. The Mets are playing six times. So, look, I can't assume that the Braves are just going to go 5-0 and against Arizona and Philadelphia. They may. They very well may looking for revenge against the Phillies. So I guess, realistically, I would say if the Mets could 
go into the series against Atlanta two and a half up. Right now, they're three up. So lose a half a game, I think I'd be all right with it. I think if we can maintain this lead, have a four-game loss column lead, I look at it that way, going into the five against Atlanta, four-game loss column lead, five-game series with Atlanta, I think I'd sign for that right now. But both teams have soft schedules with the Marlins and Nats for the Mets and with the Diamondbacks and the Phillies. The Phillies aren't soft, I shouldn't say that. They're all, they are an above 500 team. The but, scrubs. Yeah, they're a bunch of losers. <laughs> hey, quickly, let me ask you a question. Do you, do you think that there will be a trade uh, prior to our next podcast? Uh, I think the Mets may do deadline. I, mean, I know the Yankees did it a few days ahead of time with Ben and Tendi. Obviously, Vogelbach, if you want to count that. I'm going to guess it's going to be deadline day stuff. So I'm going to say when we're doing our podcast Sunday after the Marlins series, no trades to report. But then obviously after the National Series, there'll be a, a trade to report. And by the way, we're going to have a very special very special podcast after the National Series. As you know, we do the Rico Bronia after every series. Pete doesn't even know about this. He's going to learn about it right now. Oh, good. When the Mets play the Nationals on Wednesday afternoon in Washington, D.C., I'm going. So, we will record it while I'm driving back from Washington, D.C. I will get the proper microphone, so hopefully it sounds all right. My wife will be in the car. She may chime in. Jet will be in the car. He most definitely will chime in. (laughs) And look, we want to get you the Rico as fast as possible. So instead of waiting until I get home from Washington, D.C., why not do it on the car ride home? So we'll try it. Obviously, if it fails, we'll just do it a different day. But Is that that a a day game on Wednesday? It's a 4 o'clock game. Interesting. So it's a late afternoon game a four o'clock game we're off that day because the yankees play a day game a one o'clock game so we figured out we'll do a two-hour show so take it off and uh i have successfully convinced my wife and my son to go to washington dc to see little mets nationals that's awesome that is awesome listen and that is now that's why i'm filling in for you on wednesday after the yankee game let's go oh you're doing it yeah that's a little shameless plug right there yes my friend i will be filling in for you well, guess what? And this is up to you, since you are the host of that show. All right? If you want, on WFAN after the Yankee game, any live reports from Nationals Park, you <laughs> let me know. I will call in, whether it's a minute, whether it's five minutes. I will give you whatever you want. I will be your stringer from Nationals Park whenever you need me, because I'm going to be there. I, I, I'm ready to go. I'm raring and ready to go. I, I don't want to hear from you. I want to hear from Jet. Okay. That's what I want to hear from. (laughs) He'll pop on the phone and let you know. So we got a bunch of Ricos coming up. Thank you very much for downloading it, reviewing it, whatever the hell you do. And Med fans, smile. Smile. Because we swept, even though it's a two-game series, and I don't like to talk about sweeps in a two-game series, but whatever. We swept the big, bad New York Yankees. Enjoy it. Thank you for listening to Rico Brody. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.